0: Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental journalism, brought to you by the team of investigative journalists at Ends Report. I'm James Ajibong Parsons. In this week's episode, we'll be covering the potential policy impacts for Defra after their leader's decision to ban engagement with Greenpeace. We're looking at the Labour Party's decision to cut its clean air zone commitments, and we'll be taking a look at the climate quote get out clauses my quote, that the Environment Secretary has sent to water companies to find savings for consumers. For our deep dive, we'll be looking at the tremors being felt in the nascent nutrient neutrality markets, as well as the data underpinning the housing logjam statistics caused by the bad boys of the periodic table, phosphorus and nitrogen. So without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber! So what happens when you scale the prime minister's home, throw enormous black drapes over its facade and put up placards demanding an end to oil production? Well, for the five protesters, they were charged with public nuisance and all but one with criminal damage. For the organisation behind the stunt, Greenpeace, they've now been frozen out of communications with the government's department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs by order of the Environment Secretary, Therese Coffey. Tess, why were Greenpeace on the roof of the PM's constituency home in North Yorkshire? Uh, Well,
1: they were there because the Prime Minister had very recently come out supporting the exploration of hundreds of new uh, oil and gas licences in in the North Sea. And this is something that loads of climate campaigners say we absolutely mustn't be doing. We need to be keeping fossil fuels in the ground. And this is a major thing uh, that a lot of... um, you know, big climate reports say is you need to you need to stop using as many fossil fuels as we do, um, and this is this flew in the face of, of all that science. Uh, they said so they got up got up on the roof. And just to be clear,
0: it isn't actually the prime minister who is going to be approving these licenses; it's the North Sea Transition Authority. Um, but his his kind of weight behind the kind of the support of this it sort of lent well, it ruffled a lot of feathers in the NGO world. What about the impact of this done then with Therese Coffee issuing sort of a communications veto against Greenpeace? What do your sources in the government think of that?
1: Um, Well, there's there's quite a lot of disquiet about it, to be honest. Um, I've spoken to some people in DEFRA working in policy roles and they've They've sort of warned that this decision to ban government officials, that civil servants, pretty much from engaging with with Greenpeace, will have you know potentially a negative impact on policymaking, on kind of coming up with new ways to tackle environmental issues, particularly in the marine um, and deforestation uh, space, because these other views just won't be being put forward. Um, I spoke to. One particular source in Deferin, uh, they said, in banning people from speaking to Greenpeace, you've just stopped one of the world's largest environmental organisations from inputting into any sort of government policy progress. And that includes any challenge, any different views and any feedback. Um, And they pointed out that this isn't just about oil and gas energy policy. Like this will, you know, this could have ripple effects into other things like, you know, how are we going to meet our environmental targets and it, it influences the potential evidence that can come forward, uh, potentially saving taxpayers millions of pounds, this sort of thing. Um so that there is like that there I think there's a feeling from some of the people that I've spoken to that, you know, Greenpeace have they've not done this particular thing before getting on the Prime Minister's house and Doing a protest, but they, they they've caused a lot of um, disquiet before. They were sued by the government, weren't they? So they've been in the bad books, but they've never have been told to just stop talking to them. Uh, so I think there's a feeling of it was is, is this proportionate?
0: There is a feeling this is sort of a long time coming. Um, mm. and do we know the kind of the relationship between the two prior to this ban of comms?
1: Um, well, yeah. I mean, I spoke to uh, Greenpeace's director of policy, Doug Parr, and he said that the cutting of ties with DEFRA hasn't come particularly all of a sudden. Uh, like Having worked for, for Greenpeace for a while, he said that engagement in recent years has proved far more difficult than any other time. And he's like going back to like when John Major... Uh, was was prime minister and going through the Brown Blair government, including also like Theresa May's government and the Johnson government. You know they they had good engagement. He said um, with them, but in the last twelve, you kind of said twelve months, it's been especially bad. And as we found out after after we heard about um, the Defra banning engagement, uh, the Department for Energy Security and Net Zero. Uh, apparently for a few months now has had a kind of order out saying no engagement with Greenpeace and that that maybe is the bigger story here i've been thinking because that happened before the protest um so what's the there's no big trigger like we have here with the protest and you could you know you could argue that they overstepped the mark it's a private home is that acceptable i think that's you know people can debate that but um ending engagement before that protest that's a whole other set of questions
0: because I often think of lobbying as a bit of a dirty word and sort of speaking with ministers, but you know it applies as much to any corporate to an NGO. Yeah. Do we like do we have an idea of the numbers of of kind of times that these different groups, these environmental groups, get to have a sort of have a one on one with Defra and have a chat and sort of lend
1: that expertise? Mm, yes. Yeah, so one one of the kind of people that might. My- Sources in DEFRA, who I spoke to around this story, they kind of said, like, there's this mini industry of gaining external viewpoints to brief ministers and um, the invocations of various policies and consultations and things like that. And when you look through um, kind of recent transparency uh, data that the government um, has to put out on a quarterly basis, um, if you go back to January and March this year, Greenpeace had just one meeting in the, in that that period to discuss fisheries and marine environment it said um and compare that to some of the other um ngos you've got kind of wildlife trusts and other kind of branches of of the wildlife trusts uh, had nine they had meetings nine times it said national trust four times rspb four times um so that's all more um and then the the national farmers union have to point out apparently met 18 times which is quite a few more. And I think like you were getting out, some people I think would be surprised. Why should any group have the right to talk to ministers? Um, but I suppose this is the the system we have of engaging with government and trying to put forward different views. And I think that's the concern that's been raised is, okay, so you cut out Greenpeace. Um, it's not like government's going to just stop talking to people. Who, you know, who will they still be talking to, but not getting maybe other views, particularly on, I think, marine and deforestation, because that's where I think Greenpeace have a, they've got a completely different set of experiences to our kind of other NGOs in the, in the UK. And what's
0: sort of Pippa, what's the government been saying? What's Greenpeace been saying around this kind of storm of media? and?
2: Yeah, so much like what Tess was saying, um, Doug Parr emphasised that, you know, outside that, that Greenpeace operates on what he described as being outside as well as the inside. So, mm-hmm. for example, they have a lot of experience working on forest issues in the Amazon or illegal fishing. And, you know, that's the kind of expertise that you wouldn't expect somebody working in a London office um, to know about. Um, he also highlighted that Greenpeace has a formal observer status at some UN meetings um, and that relationships between NGOs and governments could be particularly important in this context. Um so, yeah, he, he said, you know, in the end, what this means is that policymaking will be less good because they'll be tested less, they'll be challenged less and there'll be less input.
0: And does the government agree with that assessment?
2: <laughs> so DEFRA declined to comment on the concerns raised about the impact that the ban on communications could have on marine and forest policy areas. But they did indicate um, that it disagrees with the assessment that mistakes could be made as a, as a result of the ban.
0: Which is what Tess's source suggested might happen as a result of this intervention against Greenpeace. Okay, on to our second story this week. And it's an ENDS report leak, quite literally. The Environment Secretary has asked water companies in England to try, make sure, please, insist, not quite sure, but please do it, that they shift costs for non-statutory target commitments over the industry's next payment round. Now I'm confused, but Tess, <laughs> please unconfusify the situation. <laughs> what Theresa Coffey been up to?
1: Yeah, very technical letters have been leaked. Um these are letters from the Environment Agency to water companies, um, basically saying that uh, on kind of on direction of the Secretary of State, Coffee, Coffey, um, that they need to find cost savings because. In the cost of living crisis we find ourselves in, um, the public purse can't really take much more. Um, and so in order to find those savings, we want you, the letters say, to look at you know where you can do that. And it suggests a few places. And in particular, and the one that sort of caught attention is uh, to find them around non-statutory commitments, including net zero. Um, and this can have all sorts of kind of implications, basically. The water economic... Private sector,
0: quasi-monopoly sector in England is really always has always confused me. But I know there are these things called price review periods. Mm. Now, so coffee is sort of saying in this five-yearly round of investment for water companies that hey, just
1: don't invest in net-zero commitments in this particular Mm. round. Is that right? What the letters are saying is look at what you can delay because there's this current price review period, as you say, coming up, the 2024 one. And these are, yeah, they're carried out every five years. They're meant to protect customer interest and make sure companies are financed properly, carrying out their functions. Um, and it's, so the one that we're talking about here, it was meant to cover the period 2025 to, to 2030 um, with the final plans meant to be submitted this October. Therefore, anything that's deferred you know will be after will be meant to be happening after 2030 and obviously in that time a lot of people say this is a crucial period for a lot of environmental uh, targets to be met including uh, climate ones which are interlinked so that's what's the the worrying thing she's not no one's she's not saying stop it don't do these things and it the less i should point out does say we expect you to still meet your statutory requirements we expect you to still um you meet the targets in the storm overflow reduction plans that's all about sewage spills there's a clear direction we still want you to stop you know putting sewage into rivers um just can you try and find a way to do it that isn't going to cost so much and maybe delay things lots of other things and it's those lots of other things which have got people worried so okay i still want
0: you to deliver certain outcomes for me says coffee but don't do it Potentially that way. How could this impact? You know, what's the kind of law of unintended consequences here? What, mm. what are people worried about? So,
1: so that so that it says, you know, you should use nature-based solutions, uh, for example, and catchment-permitting approaches. It says to achieve benefits for environment and public, regardless of the fact you need to find savings. Uh, but the concern we've heard is that uh, this steer, combined with the nature of the target framework, if you like, which for water companies focuses on or for water, the water industry, reducing nutrients in waterways and public water demand. This combined with the push towards delaying um kind of na- net zero things um, could amount to a green light to prioritize carbon intensive solutions. So like concrete, basically concrete solutions to getting uh pollution out of the water. Uh, and that's not what a lot of people want to hear because that means basically big engineering work so you can quickly get stuff out, um, but maybe not reed beds, maybe not um, uh, wetlands, which would deliver multiple environmental benefits. It would meet biodiversity requirements, which is one of the things listed as something that can maybe be deferred.
0: So the cynic in me would think that this is potentially with an election on the horizon, they don't want to be seen as you know increasing bills, but it's not going to kick in until 2025. How has DEFRA responded to these kind of concerns?
1: Um, Well, they've pointed towards the tougher enforcement and tighter regulation that they're seeking. A DEFRA spokesperson said that we have been clear with water companies that we expect them to deliver the necessary improvements to tackle pollution without unduly impacting customers' bills. Regulators will be looking closely at company business plans to ensure they achieve both these requirements. Uh, They said and they added that we also expect to see the biggest investment ever since privatisation between 2025 and 2030. Um, and then, yes, that there there is tougher enforcement and tighter regulation for the water industry, as well as supporting new rules from Ofwat on dividends and bonuses. But I'll add, just to go back to your point about being a cynic in the general election, I understand that I think Ofwat would be approving these plans. You, that, that official uh, approval would come through next year, possibly about halfway through next year, which may just coincide with a headlines. certain general election.
0: Yeah, and some nasty headlines. Hmm. Okay, one to watch. And then on to our final story. And we now know, switching up from the Tories now over to Labour, that its party has dropped the national commitment to clean air zones. Pippa, can you bring me up to speed?
2: Um, So just to backtrack a bit, in a leaked copy of the initial draft of Labour's national policy platform um, that ENDS actually reported on in May, it stated that, um, this is in quotes, Labour supports the principle of clean air zones and recognises the huge damage and human health caused by air pollution and the damage to our climate caused by carbon emissions from polluting vehicles. However, um over the weekend, The Telegraph reported that it had seen um a photograph where this paragraph had been scored out um, of the, the final document at the party's National Policy Forum, which took place last month. Um, and a Labour source apparently told the newspaper that clean air zones are a Conservative government policy and that the Tories are the ones who have pushed councils to introduce them. And they said, you know, Labour is not in favour of extra burdens on drivers during a Tory made cost of living crisis, and instead said that Labour's priority is growing the economy to improve living standards and tackle the cost of living crisis, not pushing up costs for hard working families. Um, They did say they're committed to tackling air pollution, but will always look at options to reducing air pollution, which do not put burdens on hardworking families. So May
0: 2023, all up for August 2023, no way, Tory Mm. punishment. What is this punishment? What is a clean air zone?
2: So a clean air zone is an area within a city um, where a local authority has brought measures into place to improve the air pollution as directed by central government. There are currently clean air zones in Bath, Birmingham, Bradford, Bristol, Portsmouth, Sheffield, Newcastle, and Greater Manchester's clean air zone is currently under review after, um, if people can remember, when the Mayor Andy Burnham pulled the rollout at the last minute. Um, and there are four different types of clean air zones that have varying restrictions. Um, but, yeah, basically kind of like the ultra-low emission zone in London, the aim is to reduce pollution from polluting vehicles by charging the most polluting vehicles from entering into the zone Um, and the different levels. So they go from class A to D. Um, I won't list them all, but that kind of that outlines which vehicles are included in the zone.
0: Right. So anything from like lorries to taxis to private hire cars to your own car. Yeah. I mean, I'm from Portsmouth and we have a very strange CAS where the person who has a car isn't charge for the CAS but you know taxis and lorries and everything else is which I don't know it's, it's an interesting way of doing one. Um, class B I think it is. Um, do we know if these CASs work?
2: Yeah so there is lots of evidence to say that they do so um, an example is with the Br- the Birmingham city centre clean air zone Um, And a study conducted by um, Birmingham City Council found that within six months of the zone being introduced, nitrogen dioxide levels had decreased by an average of 13%. Um, So that is a huge, you know, huge improvement in air pollution.
0: So why has Labour now decided to sort of shy away from clean air zone policy?
2: So this is all in the backdrop of the Uxbridge by-election, which we've been talking and writing about quite a lot recently. For people that aren't familiar, the Tories narrowly beat Labour in Boris Johnson's former constituency, um, and Keir Starmer blamed this um, Labour loss on the London Mayor Sadiq Khan's plans to expand the capital's ultra-low emission zone. Um, Keir Starmer's then reportedly urged the Mayor to reflect on the impact of extending the scheme, and there's been kind of wide-ranging... Um, you know, retreat from green policy from both Labour and also the Conservatives. Um, so for example, Rishi Sunak has ordered the Department for Transport to conduct a review of low traffic neighbourhoods. And now we're hearing this from the Labour Party. So this is kind of this backtrack is coming from both major parties. I just also wanted to flag here, though, that I wrote a really interesting story this morning, which is based on an investigation conducted by Valant Projects, which is a digital agency that addresses online misinformation. Um, and they observed what they said was, you know, a, a campaign on Twitter of um, kind of misinformation around the low emissions Zone policy in the lead up to um, the Uxbridge by-election. They And they said they observed a methodology which uses a multi-tiered digital architecture where different types of accounts undertake specific roles in a coordinated manner, which they say manipulates Twitter's algorithm to prioritise content from anti-ULES influencers. Um, and I thought, you know, this is really interesting. I mean, anyone that is familiar with talking about Ules or air pollution on Twitter will see that, you know, you say one thing about ULEZ and you are kind of bombarded with mm-hmm messages from kind of bot like accounts. But yeah, it's kind of an interesting to see the kind of political influence that Ux, that the ULES has had on both parties, because polling and and this study seems to suggest it might not be exactly the mood of, you know, the, the reality. Real people. Real people, yeah. <laughs>
0: Real talk. But their labour is, it, it wouldn't be fair to say that they're running away from air quality policy, would it?
2: No. So in the draft national policy platform, it does also include a pledge to pass a Clean Air Act with the document stating that the Labour Party would write standards for safe air developed by the World Health Organization into UK law. This is something which the current government has consistently been criticised for not doing. Um, And the Labour Party has previously pledged to take forward the Clean Air Human Rights Bill, um, also known as Ella's Law if elected, So yeah, it just seems that clean air zones, ULES is all something that kind of politicians on both sides are kind of tiptoeing around at the Mm. moment.
0: Oh, a lot of big green news this week. Before we move on to our deep dive, can I just ask for your moment of the week, the time where we can reflect on something fun, humorous, good, or maybe bad um, that's gone on this week? Dot, 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 or last week, Pippa.
2: So mine has to be a BBC story I saw about a university lecturer who is planning to live stream from a mountain ditch for twenty four <laughs> hours to highlight soil issues and raise climate change awareness. Um, um, yeah, I thought you know this is a real commitment to the cause, and if anyone is interested, I think it will be live streamed on Facebook at three pm on Saturday. Um, yeah, she'll be lying in the ditch for twenty four hours. Um, vocalising a live numerical data stream from the sensors in the ground around her, which measure soil, moisture and temperature.
1: Rock on prof. Yeah. (laughs) What about you, Tess? Mine's got to be the tree of the year competition. (laughs) Uh, It's big amongst trees. Um, But more importantly, there's a very particular elm on the list. It's an elm in Sheffield, um, which is... Um, been earmarked for for being chopped down multiple times. Uh, Most notably, I think in 2017, Sheffield City Council was going to chop it down as part of a felling programme, but it was saved by local campaigners after um, a particular butterfly was seen laying eggs on the tree, a very rare kind of butterfly. Um, And Now, what what a turn in fortunes. It's been nominated for Tree of the Year by the Woodland Trust. So, you know, everyone should get voting i'm i mean i won't reveal who i'll vote for but uh you know (laughs) strong strong inclination. yeah uh mine is a
0: study that was revealed this week that we found two more mole species in southeastern turkey so (laughs) i been wondering when that was going to happen yeah i mean there's a bunch of a bunch of researchers in on in on this project but including the university of plymouth um, and what they found is they've now raised the Eurasian mole count from 16 to 18. Wow.
1: Which Which, I mean,
0: I thought was blown away. And what even blew me away more, because I, I then literally fell down the molehill with this <laughs> one, was that Ireland doesn't have any moles. Or but adders. Britain does, or adders, or weasels. Mm. So it's very weird.
1: Can't all be down to St. Patrick. <laughs>
0: No, the moment of the week. (laughs) (laughs) Right, time for our deep dive as we take the plunge into the nutrient-rich waters of nutrient neutrality and the troubled waters of nutrient neutrality markets. (laughs) So, Tess, why are we talking about this now? What's brewing underneath the surface?
1: So, let me take you back to July all those many thousands of weeks ago. Uh, The Times reported that Prime Minister Rishi Sunak had intervened in a standoff, as they put it, between the Housing Minister Michael Gove and the Environment Secretary Therese Coffey uh, over Natural England's nutrient neutrality advice, uh, which the paper described as having brought housing developments to a halt across large swathes of the country. Um, That's true to a small extent. I mean, it has held up development, um, whether or not it's it's kind of the, the great ban that a lot of, uh, we've seen some newspapers talk about it, is another thing. Um, but this news came amid weeks of anonymous government briefings to papers suggesting that government was considering plans to override these rules. And that was big because what these rules are, nutrient neutrality, what does that mean? Um, it's basically about Water pollution, and if you have too many nutrients in water, it causes something called eutrophication, um, and that can kill the wildlife in it. It causes algal blooms. It takes all. It stops oxygen getting to the wildlife. It's really bad, and it impacts a lot of our waterways. And it impacts a number of internationally protected sites. And these sites have legal protection. And so, um, based on a ruling that happened in 2019. Natural England started saying to local councils, look, if you can't be sure that these developments you're looking to approve um, won't increase the amount of nutrients near these, going into these um, protected sites, you can't approve them. You might be in legal trouble. So that's where we've got to. Um, And so when the report started emerging that the government's maybe going to just get rid of the rules, Obviously, that could have big environmental consequences and business consequences, which is what we're going to be talking about, because a whole industry has started to develop around ways to solve the problem of nutrient neutrality.
0: Because it's been a four-year problem in waiting. And in that time, people are trying to develop these solutions, you know, uh, setting offsetting land and yeah. tree planting schemes. Yeah, and-
1: people have tried lots, like you said, like kind of taking farmland out of production has right. been a big one and turning that into... Uh, wetlands is a big one because wetlands are great, basically at, uh, absorbing nutrients, if okay. you like, um, and various other schemes. But which is yeah. great for
0: plant growth because I, I, you know, let's not vilify nitrogen and phosphorus. I, I started off the piece saying the bad boys <laughs> of the periodic table. They are, you know, we they are macronutrients essential for life, but we're just talking about excess amounts of
1: yeah, yeah, moderation in all things. Moderate exactly.
0: So in this four-year build-up. There have you know and and I, I remember Boris Johnson once saying when he was PM that he would you know provide a dino rod to unplunge this situation this problem mm. of of blocked housing. But there there have been players working to to come up with solutions. And now what are those actors saying to you?
1: Well. So all this, the kind of the mood music that's come around in the last month or so, saying that actually maybe we'll ease the ease the nutrient neutrality requirement. It's caused huge uncertainty uh, in this new kind of market, this new natural capital market. Um, and, you know, I've heard from, from some kind of these kind of new businesses and they've said one in particular, they've seen investors taking a step back on schemes, which could they say unlock thousands of homes. Uh, in this development logjam, but now they're having, it's the, and business hates uncertainty. We hear this all the time in regards to uh, all sorts of sectors. And it's true here as it is everywhere else. Um, Gabriel Connor-Strike, who is uh, the founder and chief executive of Greenshank Environmental, which is one of these businesses that's been set up to work with developers to find ways to get houses built in an environmentally um, good way. Uh, He told me, we were just about to sign off investment into our business that would have given us the security to plow ahead with projects that might have longer time periods for us to generate revenue. And the investors have all taken a step back and are considering how to manage it, it being the uncertainty. Um, he said that, you know, some people have been a bit bullish about it saying, well, you know, let's, let's see what happens. But he's got a strong sense that as soon as anyone has put the hand in their pocket, get the money out, which is going to be needed soon to get a lot of the schemes that certainly his company's working on, things will start grinding to a halt unless some certainty comes forward.
0: So what's the scale of the problem at the moment? Like, What are we looking at Mm. across England?
1: Uh, Well, it's it's a good question because the actual numbers on how many homes are held up uh, is not that easy to answer. So the Home Builders Federation, which is um, the membership body for the housing development sector, um, and they, they say they represent about 80% of the industry, they say that about 145,000 homes are delayed because of um, what they call Natural England's ban, uh neutral neutrality ban, and that's across roughly 74 local authorities in England. So that's the only real number that we have out there publicly. Um, and I've looked into... That number a bit because you know you see it kind of splashed across newspapers and yeah you know it's used by politicians uh, to say look we need to do something about this we need to hurry up and maybe ease the neutral neutrality requirements there's more on this on our website we can go and have a look at basically they've done a survey of their members um scaled that number up uh, to try to make it match the whole market as I said they they only represent about 80 percent by their own reckoning. Um, they've then taken a calculation of the planned housing delivery in each of the affected local planning authorities, assessing how many homes it thinks would have come forward if Natural England didn't have its advice in place. Um, it then, and this gets a bit complicated, so bear with me, um, it takes a proportion of that number. So that number they came up with in a report published in March. So when they published that 145,000 homes were delayed. That was that was about two months or so after that report. So they added a proportion of the planned housing delivery onto the number they'd got through their survey. Okay. So. Best guess. It's a best guess. It's based on quite a lot, think just anyone listening to that, there's a lot of assumptions in there. You've mm-hmm. obviously scaling up Um it's, it's not, you know, I don't think it would stand up in a a scientific paper if you like, but to be fair to them, I suppose there's not an easy way to get these figures. It's not like there's any central place where all this is listed. Um, but it's interesting to know because that caveat is not put out by the newspapers when they report on it. Um, House Builders Federation do say this is an estimate when you ask them or when you look at any of their communications, um, and they, you know, say that they they reckon it's robust enough, um, considering all the, you know, when all the caveats are taken into account. But it's that if the caveats are taken into account. So if anyone listening has a uh, any other kind of analysis on this, I would be very keen to hear.
0: So it could be more, could be less, but it's a proxy figure we have right now.
1: Yeah, and it's probably less from all the people I have been talking to. Um, that number doesn't take into kind of consideration the kind of mitigation uh measures that so you know some places yeah, already have in place are doing really the well. Solent Natural English just opened a, a kind of nutrient uh, mitigation scheme up in Teesside. side okay um and i mentioned green shank environmental earlier they um wrote a letter alongside some other kind of people involved in the nutrient mitigation market um business they wrote a letter to the prime minister um basically saying like look this uncertainty is going to ruin everything you need to not just stick with it um basically hold your nerve <laughs> um we're bring we've got plans to bring forward uh, well, when they when they surveyed so this is another survey i have to say when they surveyed there um that kind of the people working in this sector they reckon they've got about 77,000 houses they can that can be mitigated through various schemes um that's some that are live and some that in the pipeline. So not live yet But they're coming, but it could all go. Right. If investors are pulling out, or if, you know, it turns out, if a landowner looks at their kind of situation and thinks, well, if this nutrient neutrality requirement might not be a thing in a few months, am I really going to commit cash or anything like that? It's so interesting, isn't
0: it? Because all the big government policy plans are always banking on private investment coming down the
1: line. It's exactly what they talk about. It's particularly this Conservative government. They say, you know, obviously the, the public person that all the, the public sector needs to support and provide enforcement but we really need private money that's the all that's been the line for years is that we need the private sector to come in give the money uh pump this whole nature recovery strategy that the government is, is apparently working towards for 2030 um but this is the exact opposite of that
0: when will we won't we know what's happening next then
1: Well, quite. Um, According, so, currently nothing has been happening for a little while, but according to a Westminster source of my endeavour is set to hold a ministerial meeting uh, with peers in early September to discuss neutral neutrality ahead of the Lord's debate on the issue for the levelling up and regeneration bill, which uh, in that Times piece where they first started reporting on the the rumours, that's where of governments may be looking to, to ease the requirements. I should say it's normal for the government to meet with parliamentarians to discuss legislation. It's not particularly weird, um, but the timing of the meeting has seen it. You know, put to me that it, you know it could suggest something's afoot, but what exactly may is, is still a bit unclear. Um, what we do know is that for any new amendments to have been tabled by then, so in time for that next you know bit of the, the parliamentary process. Um, if following procedure, the government would need to have done so, scheduled those amendments by 25th of August, um, which is when the deadline is, okay. that, and that's pretty soon. And you know, we're in the middle of recess at the moment, it's August. I don't have the sense there's lows going on in DEFRA currently. If they don't make that deadline, then it would be much more difficult for them to schedule anything. It would be difficult to schedule anything truly dramatic, like scrapping nutrient neutrality yeah. in the levelling up bill. Of course, there are other ways to to schedule um, big changes, as we've been t- talking about in previous episodes of the Eco Chamber. The Retained EU Law Act provides ample opportunity to change uh, retained EU law, which this kind of com- comes under. Uh, the Environment Act itself contains um, kind of uh, sections which could could see the government change parts of the uh, legislation impacting this. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's lots of other ways it could happen, but September is the is the time to watch. The levelling up bill that's what the government has briefed it's going to be looking at whether it comes to actually look at it properly and think well we haven't really if they really want to do anything dramatic they haven't got much time. There's going to be all sorts of recesses again come October because we've got the party conference season where things basically shut down. In terms of um, kind of making legislation or parliament, so it, it's the, the the timelines are tight.
0: Yes, as we wait with bated breath, what has the government said in response to all this?
1: Um, well, I put it to them, you know, when are you going to provide some certainty as to these these businesses, which who maybe you know having investors step back, um, and they said. The government remains committed to delivering housing in areas impacted by nutrient neutrality and is supporting local authorities and developers. We recognise the urgency of this issue, they said, and have taken substantial steps to both unlock housing now and to address the underlying causes of nutrient pollution at source. So that's what they said. That's not quite an answer to my question, but that is what they said.
0: And that's it. My thanks to Tess Colley and Pippinil for coming on to this week's episode of the Eco Chamber. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the readers of Ends Report, whose subscriptions ensure that important investigative journalism about the UK's natural environment actually takes place. I'd really love to hear what you guys think with your thoughts, views and opinions. So please email us ecochamber at haymarket.com or on X using the hashtag #EcoChamber. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next
2: time, take care.